Welcome to Access Utah. I am Sherry Quinn. Retired teacher turned editor and author Kim Bancroft writes in her cabin in the coastal redwoods near Willits, California. She's the great-great-granddaughter of Hubert Howe Bancroft, who started the Bancroft Library, now at the University of California in Berkeley. During his lifetime, H.H. Bancroft collected 60,000 items from materials including dictations from pioneers, newspapers, maps, books, and archives all along the Pacific coast. He hired scribes and published 39 volumes of the history of the Pacific West from this vast library. One of his collections includes his autobiography. Kim Bancroft edited all 800 pages of the thick Victorian prose and the modern abridged edition called Literary Industries, Chasing a Vanishing West. This book was very personal for me because it's my great-great-grandfather and he's talking about the founding of California as he was there as a young man of 19 and what his own role was as somebody who decided that instead of getting gold in the fields, he would sell books to the miners and to the early Californians. And there's a sense for me of of trying to learn about my own family history through this. That was perhaps my first motivation, selfishly so. But I also really came to appreciate the work that he did to get all of these stories. I mean, he went by foot, by horse, by wagon, ferry, steamer, stagecoach, all up and down the coast to collect stories from people from Mexico to Vancouver of people who had come to this coast with a vision of starting a new society, a new civilization, of expanding it. She says some of his stories were heartbreaking, particularly ones where he mentioned the terrible treatment Indians endured. The butchery that went on in California and that to read that from somebody who who was so newly settled here was very painful. But it also made me appreciate a lot of the work that went into those who came here who were starting over for whatever their reasons were. And he was so visionary. He wanted to create this history of the West and to do something that he could see very quickly. The society was already changing. It went from you know, um, a sleepy little Mexican town called Yerba Buena that was to become San Francisco, covered with tents as the miners rushed into this new civilization of a a city that had three and four and five-story buildings very quickly. And so for H.H. Bancroft to say, let's capture this history while it's happening was a very visionary approach to looking at what was going on in his society. In the beginning of the book, H.H. Bancroft explains why he decided to create histories of the Pacific West. Kim says one passage resonates the sheer magnitude of his purpose. And he says, It was first of all to save to the world a mass of valuable human experiences, which otherwise, in the hurry and scramble attending the securing of wealth, power, or place in this new field of enterprise, would have dropped out of existence. These experiences were all the more valuable for the fact that they were new. The conditions attending their origin and evolution never had before existed in the history of mankind and never could again. This was, here on this coast, the ringing up of universal intelligence for the final display of what man can do at his best with all the powers of the past united. 
and surrounded by conditions such as never had before fallen to the lot of man to enjoy. So he's talking about here his sense that in the Pacific West and in California in particular, there was this amazing opportunity. I see it sadly as the annihilation of the Indians in the wake of the Europeans and Americans and people from all over the world who came here. But there was also, in his perspective, this opportunity to create new civilization and new opportunities of all kinds in technology and agriculture, what was happening with mining, shipping, commerce, and culture. So that was what he saw as his purpose in trying to collect all of these materials. She says her great-great-grandfather was very analytical throughout the book, and she was especially struck by how much he wrote about his feelings. A society where we don't think of men as particularly open and a time when people would talk about their feelings. He was very analytical in this book, in his autobiography, and he, he often went into why he did what he did and how he felt and, and trying to understand his own and other people's character. And so there was a, a period where he'd collected all of this work and he thought about trying to make an encyclopedia of the West and he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do. Years before, his first wife had died very, very tragically in childbirth. And there was a part of him that seemed restless intellectually and otherwise and depressed, actually. And so he talks about the summer of 1871, and um, he was back east and, and hanging out with some friends. And he says uh, that he, he says, In the summer of 1871, I lounged about among my friends at the east, listless and purposeless. From this lethargy, I was awakened by the accidental remark of a lady at whose house I was visiting with my daughter. She was an earnest, practical woman, cool and calculating, one whose friendship had been of long duration and whose counsel now was as wise as it was beneficent. Clearly comprehending the situation, she saw that for me, activity was life, passivity, death, and her mind seemed to dwell on it. One day she said to me, the next 10 years will be the best of your life. What are you going to do with them? A leading question, truly, and one I had often asked myself of late without ability to answer. What was I to do? I did not know, but I would do something and that at once. I would mark out a path and follow it. And if in the meantime I should be overwhelmed, let it be so. I would waste no more time waiting. Once more, I rubbed my lamp and asked the genius what to do. In due time, the answer came. The way was made clear, yet not all at once. Still, from that time, I was at less loss as to what next I should do and how I should proceed to do it. From that day to this, I have known less wavering, less hesitation. I would make an effort, whatever the result, which should be ennobling in which even failure should be infinitely better than listless inaction. How challenging was it to interpret that language from that time period, the Victorian language? It was, it's been difficult at times, even rereading it. I have to be careful of the phrasing because it's, it's um, more complex diction in a way. And the vocabulary is wonderful 
I just would have to sometimes look at a sentence and say, now, what's he really saying here? But I, I enjoy that. It's, it's complex, and there's a sense of enjoyment of that complexity of language. You know, now we're in a, at a time where we're reducing everything to tweets and texts, and this is a time where they really could spend energy reading and thinking about what they read and could be more focused on a more developed and detailed analysis. And what did you learn about California? What were some things that were surprising to you or interesting? Like you, uh, 800 pages, right? Quite a task. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess, you know, really on... The first level, this book was very personal for me because it's my great-great-grandfather, and he's talking about the founding of California as he was there as a young man of 19 and what his own role was as somebody who decided that instead of getting gold in the fields, he would sell books to the miners and to the early Californians. And there's a sense for me of, of trying to learn about my own family history through this. That was perhaps my first motivation, selfishly so. But I also really came to appreciate the work that he he did to get all of these stories. I mean, he went by foot, by horse, by wagon, ferry, steamer, stagecoach, all up and down the coast to collect stories from people from Mexico to Vancouver of people who had come to this coast with a vision of starting a new society, a new civilization, of expanding it. You say that he had a lot of personal tragedies in his life, and um, obviously that was a major tragedy, having his wife die die in childbirth. And and he was able still to go on to raise a family and collect all of these stories and (laughs) documents, and uh, that's such an overwhelming task. Yes. And another major tragedy, as he describes in this book, is that in the the book came out in 1890. In 1886, his whole business, five stories, a humongous building in, in uh, downtown San Francisco burned to the ground. Fortunately, he had already moved his his collection of manuscripts, documents, books. His whole library was further south at the time on um, what's what's now, um, what was, now it's called Cesar Chavez. But he, his building, he had a, a huge building. It was known as one of the best, if not the best, bookstores in San Francisco. He also had a bindery, publishing, had a huge amount of stock ready for the, his printing works. And um, he had still something like 200,000 volumes of his works that he was going to produce um, all burned up. And so that was a huge loss. And he talks, he goes into great detail about how devastating it was and how much he would have preferred uh, to just quit right then. But there were a couple hundred men working for him and had been for a very long time. And he said he felt as much for them as he felt for him, that they had families to feed and he needed to get the business going again. So he shows over and over that he was a man of great persistence, perseverance, and um, and stubbornness even. Can you talk about the library 
now. Yeah, uh, the library bit. is an amazing place. There's now, I believe, something like six million documents of all kinds that are at the the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And it was bought by the University of California early in 1906, I believe, and transported from San Francisco over to Berkeley, very fortunately, just before the San Francisco earthquake hit, in which case it too would have been lost. Um, And actually in 1906, Bancroft still had had rebuilt his whole publishing um, business, and it went down again in 1906 in the earthquake. But the library was saved, and the library is one of the premier libraries on the West Coast. Um, They have not only all of these papers that Bancroft collected that include archives from uh, when Spain was in control of of Mexico, and then Mexico was in control of California, all the archives going back to those days. Um, including mission archives of the baptisms, births, and deaths of the Indians who lived on the missions, um, to the stories, the dictations that were taken of the early pioneers, newspapers, pamphlets, really bizarre stuff. I mean, what partly what's interesting is that when the university wanted to buy Bancroft's library, they said, this is junk. Why are we buying newspapers and flyers and pamphlets? But actually, that material has come to be seen as very useful for understanding what life was like at, at the grassroots and doing historical research that really can look at different segments of society. And then since then, the the University of California, since it was bought, continued to provide funding for the, the library to buy other kinds of materials so that it's become a a great resource for the works of many writers, poets. The Mark Twain papers are at the University of California Bancroft Library, and then the Bancroft Library has been able to kind of absorb other and and, uh, work with other libraries and museums, including the Judah Magnus Museum in Berkeley. That's a, a great fund of Jewish history and culture. And then where can we find the book? The book can be found at Heyday, um, which you can get online and just go to heydaybooks.com. And the book, again, is Literary Industries Chasing a Vanishing West by Hubert Howe Bancroft. And Heyday itself is an amazing reserve of incredible works about all kinds of California cultures, Indian Japanese, African-American, Hmong, they do an amazing job of of collecting the stories of California, including the works that came out in the 19th and early 20th century. Another book edited by Kim Bancroft was recently published called The Heyday of Malcolm Margolin, The Damned Good Times of a Fiercely Independent Publisher. He really is such a character. 
The book explores the experiences of the founder, Malcolm Margolin, and tracks Heyday's history from its beginnings in Berkeley in the 1970s to today. One of the first things you notice about him, she says, is his beard. Well, first of all, as many people said in the book when I interviewed them about their associations with Malcolm, they, they mentioned, well, when you meet Malcolm, the first thing you notice is his beard. He's got this great fluffy beard, sort of Walt Whitman-esque, and he represents a combination of characters, a, a hippie from the 60s who just never got over being a hippie in his ethos or in his looks. He's also um, Jewish from Dorchester, from Boston, and so he's got a certain accent and an intellect and curiosity, but he also has this real sense of iron, ironic wit, and people notice that. He's, he's quick to make people laugh, but he's also so intent when you talk to him on really paying attention to you and looking you in the eye and asking questions about who you are and and what your day has been like. And so there's an attentiveness that is very endearing, as well as his intellect and his wide sense of connection to so many different issues, art, literature, history, Native California in particular. He's, he's a really fascinating person all around. Born in 1940, Malcolm is now 74 years old. Bancroft says he started Heyday 40 years ago in order to publish one book called The East Bay Out, that was based on his study of the parks of the East Bay Hills in California. He worked for them as an unofficial ranger in the early 1970s and wrote the book that she says was part trail guide and part love letter to the hills. It included the history of the Ohlone Indians, the area's original inhabitants. After it was published, his next book was about the Ohlone Indians. And the Ohlone Way has become a major book for those interested in native California. And he thought at first he would just spend a few months doing the research in the library, and then it became it grew and grew and grew, and it also connected him to living Ohlone Indians. And so he realized, well, they're not all dead and extinct and annihilated, but actually people who have a very um, rich culture still going on from times past. That got him connected to a lot of Indian communities across California. So what Heyday has done has, from those first couple of books, he's expanded to create a whole library of books that are about Native California, that are about all different kind of ethnic groups in California, California history and literature that he's brought back, including literary industries, for example, which was my great-great-grandfather's autobiography from the from 1890. But also, uh, Heyday produces a lot of books about the environment, ecology, natural history. He's, he's also used Heyday as a source of helping other organizations that are getting started. For example, organizations that are supporting traditional arts or language revitalization in the Native communities. So the reach of Heyday is very subtle but far and powerful. She says Malcolm's passion for books about the environment and the back-to-the-land movement was so great. He had books feeling nearly every crevice of his household. You know, when he started out publishing, he talks about what's partly endearing is he admits he had no idea really what he was doing and he had the East Bay Out 
published and then had boxes all over his house, under his kids' beds, in the bathroom, that and he had to then start distributing them himself, which eventually he did. He, As he said, he, he was also very lucky in that when he started publishing, the books that he was publishing were part of a whole movement of consciousness about the environment and a, a sort of going back to the land, whether it was hiking in the hills or uh, mountaineering or um, paying more attention to Native issues and other ethnic issues as part of the blossoming of the 70s and 80s. She was first introduced to Malcolm while teaching an English class at Merritt College in Oakland. His daughter, Sadie, was one of her students. So I met him through when his daughter said that he wanted to speak with me. I I went in and met him and he said, I really like how you're responding to my daughter's papers and asking good questions and being supportive as well as challenging. Would you would you want to um, edit? I've got somebody in mind. So he kind of assigned me to Daryl Wilson, and then you just yeah. saw a picture of him, mm-hmm. whose book was and is an amazing tribute to his native culture, where he grew up in the in the shadows of Mount Shasta, and to the ways that native peoples have been so challenged, if not shattered, by white society and domination. And yet, here was Daryl's story filled with the the legends, the, the myths, the connections to native ways that persisted. So it's a wonderful book. So that was really how I got to be connected to Malcolm. What is his response to the book? Well, he's a very humble person, so he finds the attention on him, I think, very difficult. And every time we're doing book talks and questions come up about what he did, the great things that he's done for Heyday and for California culture, he deflects that often to go back to who has helped create Heyday and who are the people who have created these books and are creating these books. And it's another nice touch about him that he's not trying to bask too much in the attention, but he wants the attention to be on the other people who are also creative producers. How do you think he was able to accomplish all of this, especially in the publishing world? He would say it was by luck that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time writing things that people were interested in. I also think, well, one thing that, as the one of the chapters talks about, it, the, I titled it, we weren't, it was a quote from him, which was, we weren't making money anyhow. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle of that chapter is, Heyday Becomes a Nonprofit. So it's true, many, many publishing companies have closed down. He talks about the rich array of publishers and printers and bookstores and all kinds of literary events that were going on in the 70s and 80s, and that's really changed. And he admits that he was not a great accountant, so he was having trouble producing these books that he thought needed to be out there, that there had to be a voice, there had to be a platform for Native Californians or for, you know, there's a wonderful book that Heyday did of an African-American man who's his memoir coming from the South having grown up in the South and and being exiled. It's called Ticket to Exile. Or there's a book now of the Hmong who never even had a written language. So he believes these books need to exist, and he doesn't care 
if it's not going to be commercially viable, which puts the company at risk, of course. So friends of his who thought he was doing the right thing by producing all of these beautiful books and, and supporting these organizations helped shepherd Heyday into becoming a nonprofit. So that way they're able to get money from foundations that will help support writing a book about oak trees because there's an oak tree foundation, for example, or a, a foundation that wants to give money to d help Heyday do the work that it does in language revitalization. So that's been one way it's he's really been smart about maneuvering into the next century. How involved is he in what gets published now? Well, he's very involved in making the initial choice. I mean, originally things always came through him, and now he's got a really wonderful editor who helped edit this book, Gail Watawa, and a couple of other ones, but she's now the acquisitions editor. And but still, Heyday's choices reflect Malcolm's interests, especially in the beginning, whether it was about bicycling or nature or um, Indians or supporting traditional arts and crafts. So there's still a real sense that all of the books are about and come from California, but there's still a sense that they really represent some of what have been Malcolm's interests. Kim reads from the preface of the book. She says it highlights the people behind the history of Heyday. From Malcolm's family, to the writers who bring in their ideas and see them blossom into books, to the employees who help make those books come to life, to the friends and associates who contribute to Heyday's cultural offshoots and its nonprofit board. Proud of the multitudes who have helped Heyday succeed over the years, Malcolm sought to ensure that as many of their voices as possible were integral to this history. I myself was inspired while listening to those whose work has wrought beautiful books and meaningful organizations. The voices here reveal how a business can be developed and persist, in which employees feel their own power and purpose in collaborating with one another on an equal footing, a business founded on doing right by others. The interviews also demonstrate the courage and humility of a man who has stepped outside what would be the comfort zone for many of us in order to travel into other cultures and communities and make deep connections there. I came to admire the creativity and tenacity, not only of Heyday's founder, but also of those who write or work for Heyday, for News from Native California, its journal, for the various Heyday-associated organizations, and for the board of Heyday itself. In conclusion, Kim says Malcolm really knew how to change the mood at the office, or just about anywhere. I guess the last thing I'd say is that he's been such a wonderful inspiration to me about just being generous and calm. There's several people in the book when they talked about their experiences of working with him mentioned how often he he would just laugh at something that goes wrong. And so many of us get really uptight and we've, you know, we've, we're running out of time or we one woman talked about messing up a print job and and he just laughed. And he has this sort of, this attitude that, well, actually, somebody described it as the fact that he has anxiety deficit disorder. And I, I think it's something that a lot of us can learn from.
That was Kim Bancroft, author of Literary Industries, Chasing a Vanishing West, and The Heyday of Malcolm Margolin, The Damned Good Times of a Fiercely Independent Publisher. Thanks for listening. This is Sherry Quinn for Access Utah.